time, this doesn't look as attractive as it once did because you're fixing your eyes on the things of the kingdom. I'm just talking about a thousand that have a vision for their heart. They've got passion for God. They're leading intercession on their schools. They're set apart, consecrated under God. And they've got a vision and a mission for their life. All right, good, good. Hey, let's pray and jump in. Jesus, we welcome you here tonight. God, I am so thankful for already the testimony of your activity, the, the opportunity to come and worship you and declare how great you are. I thank you that we get to do this every Wednesday night. I pray that we would know how blessed we are, that we would be encouraged by our friends here. Amen. Amen. Well, we are in a series called Misfits. Everybody say Misfits. I'm going to keep making you say stuff until you really say stuff. Everybody say Misfits. misfits. There we go. Okay. And uh, so last week we talked about being a misfit and not being of this world and, and living contrary to, the, to, to what this world says and not chasing cool. And so that's the idea that we talked about last week. And, uh, and so this week I want to talk about some of my favorite guys in the Bible. Uh, th- these are the, uh, some guys who when I read their stories, I just, I get excited. Uh, and and it, is, it's just, it inspires me. And, uh, and so those guys are, are the stories of David's mighty men. Anybody, have you guys heard of David's mighty men? These are the men that, that served with King David uh, when he was in the desert. And I, I so, or in the wilderness, I, and I, I so love their story that actually when Amy and I got married, I, I, uh, for, for my gift that I gave all my groomsmen, I had different names inscribed on a necklace of David's mighty men, and I gave it to each one of them uh, because I so love these guys, and they so inspire me. Uh, but b- before, I, before I get into... Uh, who they are and what they stand for and what they did. I want to I just tell a little bit of the story of David. Okay, so David uh, is in the Bible. I don't know if you've ever heard of him before. I'm not talking about David, your youth pastor. I'm talking about David in the Bible. Lest you get confused as I go on tonight, this is not about David Perkins. This is about King David in the Bible. Uh, I, I really would hate for you to think I call my brother King David. That, that would not be something that I would enjoy. So I'm talking about the dude in the Bible. And uh, so most of us know the story of when he, was, when he was a shepherd boy on the hillside and Samuel came, come, comes to his house and, uh, and, and is looking to anoint the next king and looks at, he basically, uh, David's dad lines up all of David's brothers and he's like, you'll find your king here. And uh, Samuel looks and he's like, no, none of these guys are good enough. Do you have anybody else? And, uh, and he's like, well, I got this little scrawny guy. He's, my, he, he's out with the sheep. And he gets, and, and so he comes, and Samuel's like, this is him. God doesn't look at the outward appearance, but God looks at the heart. A lot of us know the story of, of David and Goliath, where he goes out and he kills this giant dude with some rocks, and then he, well, he hits him with a rock, and then he cuts off his head with a giant sword. That's my favorite part of the story. And actually, that's not true. That's my second favorite part. My favorite part is then he picks up his head and runs around with it, and that is the awesome part of the story. So we know those stories, but I want to I pick up post-Goliath, okay? So we're talking about David, and, and so he's, he's killed Goliath. He's anointed to be the next king of Israel. And so what happens is, and are, so, so are you guys okay with a little story time tonight? A little story time with Dan. A little story time. And uh, so, so, uh, so he's anointed to be the next king, and he goes out, he kills Goliath. And, uh, and so what happens is he gets to be, he's appointed Saul's armor bearer. And so what that means is that he carries Saul's armor. And, uh, and so wherever Saul goes, whenever Saul goes to war, David is with him. David carries his armor. They go to war, and uh, David gives him his armor, and Saul fights. And so in the midst of that, 
Uh, David's spending a lot of time with Saul. Saul is, is seeing, you know, who David is, and, and they're spending a lot of time together. And, and eventually, David starts fighting, too. He doesn't just carry the armor, but he actually starts fighting, too. And, uh, and so it turns out that David is a really good warrior. And uh, apparently, he's not just handy with a slingshot, but, but he starts just dominating in the army. And so, he's, and so when they come back, uh, they come back into town victorious, and, and the king comes riding into town, and everybody is supposed to, when the, when the army comes back successful, everybody's supposed to praise the king, right? They're like, oh, great king, you're, you're so awesome. And so what happens, though, is Saul rides in, and, uh, and it's really interesting. You can, you can read uh, in 1 Samuel 18, uh, what happens is they come back to town, and all the women are singing about Saul, but they're also singing about David. They're singing, Saul has killed his thousands, but David his ten thousands. So David is like, the, the rumors have spread of how awesome David is, right? And so Saul is coming in, expecting everybody to be like, oh, Saul, you're so awesome. And instead, all the ladies are like, "Woo, I'm going to sing about David. Dudes, can you imagine if tomorrow when you go to school, everywhere, every time you walk down the hallway, all the women started singing to you and about you? I mean, I don't even know what David was thinking, but... Uh, but this is the moment where Saul starts to not like David. And there's a lot of things about Saul that, that I don't like. This is one of the moments that I kind of understand. Like, I can understand him not liking David when all the chicks are singing about David. He's like, dude, I'm the king. Why are they singing about you, little shepherd boy? But they sang about the shepherd boy. And so, uh, so they don't really, so, so anyway, so they're hanging out. And uh, Saul starts to get jealous of David. And uh, one of David's duties is that he plays uh, the harp for Saul. He sits and Saul, Saul sits on his throne and David sits on the ground or something and he plays the harp. And, uh, and so one night, Saul is just ticked off that all the women are singing about David or whatever. And, uh, and he's got a spear and David is just sitting there playing the guitar. And Saul takes his spear and throws it at David. I want you to imagine David's surprise. David thinks, man, this king thinks I'm awesome. This king likes me, and I am really doing awesome for this kingdom. I, I'm, I'm really advancing, and, you know, I did really great. At, why is he throwing spears at me? You know, he's, like, playing his little guitar. I mean, it's a harp, but it's probably a guitar because David was better than the harp. Anyway, you know, he was playing his little instrument, you know, and he's like, oh, the G chord, oh, the D chord. There's a spear coming at my head. You know, like, David must have had great reflexes. He was able to dodge it not once but twice. Saul threw two spears at David, and David escaped and uh, got out of there. And, uh, and so he was pretty quick. I guess he had cat-like speed and reflexes. And uh, so at this moment, I think David begins to realize, Saul doesn't really like me. You know, he just threw some spears at me. I don't know how many of you have ever had a spear thrown at you, but uh, I imagine that David didn't really enjoy it. And so, so Saul doesn't like him, so Saul, Saul puts him in charge of this army, uh, so that basically he sends him to war so that he dies, right? So Saul throws the spears. He misses because he has bad aim. So he's like, I'll put him in charge of the army so that he'll go die. Because Saul doesn't want David to become king and steal his throne, all that stuff. Well, instead of dying, David goes out to war and kicks tail again. And he's just awesome. And he's just like dominating. And Saul is getting more angry and more angry. And so David comes back and he does something that I find somewhat foolish, but okay, it's pretty evident at this point that Saul wants David dead. And so what does David do? 
he marries Saul's daughter. I, I, listen, I mean, you know, the whole in-law thing is one thing, but when your in-law is literally throwing spears at you, trying to kill you, that's a, when your father-in-law wants to cut your head off, that creates awkward family dynamics, you know? That's, that creates pretty weird family reunions, you know? And so, but he marries Saul's daughter, and, uh, and so they get married, and then, so they're probably sitting around the table one night. It's probably Thanksgiving or something. And Saul throws a spear at David again. And so David is like, you know what? My father-in-law hates me. And so I'm going to leave. And so uh, him and his wife are in their house. This is Saul's daughter. And it says that she let him out through the window. And he snuck out. And then I, I'm not even joking. You can read this. You think that you're clever, right? You think that you created some new idea. Read it. it it's in... Uh, 1 Samuel 18, 19, 19, 12, okay? Saul's daughter, David's wife, her name's Michael. It's a girl, but her name's Michael. She, she lets David out the window, and then she takes an idol. I don't know why she had an idol, but she takes an idol, puts it in the bed, puts goat hair on the idol, pulls the covers up so that the guards would think David's sleeping in the bed. I don't know if she had like a snoring machine or something. But, I mean, I know, I'm looking at some of you that I know you've tried this on your parents. And listen, this is not a new tactic. They come in and they can tell that that is not you, but that is a basketball on the pillow. And they, they can tell the difference. But, but David's wife tries to fool the guards. David runs away. It goes through a series of events. Saul keeps trying to kill him. He's chasing him. David ends up in, in the city that Goliath is from. This is the dude that he killed. And... Uh, and the, the king or the, the, the ruler of this city is like, hey, isn't that the guy that killed our main dude? And uh, so David has to pretend to be insane. Have you guys heard this part? David has to pretend to be insane so that he doesn't get killed. And he like starts scratching the walls and drooling down his beard. I'm just telling you this so that you know that, that uh, I don't know how much we always read the Bible like it's a story, but there's some crazy stories in there. It's pretty interesting if you would read it. He's drooling down the beard, and finally the guy's like, don't kill him. He's too insane. Just get him out of here. And, uh, and so then David goes, and he escapes to the cave of Adullam. And that is where we're, gonna, where we're, we're really going to focus here tonight. It's in the cave of Adullam. This is his safe place. David has a moment where he comes back to the Lord and he says, and, and he really, he, he's done some shady things in his escaping Saul. And, and so he has a moment where he comes back to the Lord. And it's really interesting in, in 1 Samuel 21, it says that he was in the cave of Adullam and, and his family came to him and, and, all, and about 400 other people came and joined him. And so this is where we get into the part of the story where I'm talking about uh, my, some of my favorite guys in the Bible, David's mighty men. They came and they joined him in the cave of Adullam. And what they did, actually, they spent five years. So I want you to remember, David's been anointed to be king. He's supposed to be the next king. But instead of going along, like, you would think if you were 14 years old and you were told you're going to be the next president of the United States, no one can change it, there's nothing that's going to happen, but you are the next president, you would think your life would be pretty set, right? You would think, sweet, I'm going to be president. They're going to take care of me. They're going to comfort me. I'm going to have really nice things. And I'm just going to live a really easy life until I'm 45 and become president. I'll bet you that's what David thought. But he was anointed to be king. And then from then on, he was being chased by the king who was trying to kill him. His life didn't look like he thought it would look. 
He was, he was having to run away from people and drool on his beard to act crazy so that he didn't die. And all along, he's probably like, man, I'm supposed to be king, and yet I'm drooling on my beard. This is not very sophisticated of me, but I have to do what I have to do. And it was probably hard for him that the people didn't rally behind him. They didn't come and say, yeah, you're our king. It turns out that there were 400 people that came and met him in that cave. And they spent the next five years, for the next five years, David and these 400 people were battling the Philistines because they were the enemies of the Israelites. And they were running from Saul, the king. So they were stuck in the middle. They were fighting for their own country, but their own country was trying to kill them. Multiple times, David had the opportunity to take Saul out, and he, but he decided, no, I won't touch the Lord's anointed. He was patient and waited for God's timing. And so, but I, I just, I love the story of the guys that came and hung out with David. And so we're going to go there. If you have your Bible, I'm gonna, we're going to read here in uh, 2 Samuel. 2 Samuel chapter 23. 2 Samuel 23. We're going to start in verse 8. And these are the names of David's mighty warriors. The first one, Joshub, I don't really know how to say all these names, but Joshub Bashabeth. This guy, let me tell you what this guy did. He raised his spear against 800 men whom he killed in one encounter. Like this, this, is, this is the Bible we're reading here, okay? So like, there, here's this dude, we'll call him Joe. He had one spear, 800 men, one encounter, took them all out. Next to him was Eleazar, the son of Dodo says he was with David when they taunted the Philistines then the, and the Israelites then retreated. But Eleazar stood his ground and struck down the Philistines till his, till his hand grew tired and froze to the sword. The Lord brought back a great victory that day. The troops returned to Eleazar, but only to strip up the dead. So here David is hanging out with Eleazar. And all these guys, they have the whole Philistine army and they have their army. And, uh, and David and Eliezer go out and they're like, we're going to go pick a fight. And so they taunt the Philistines. They're like, what you got? Bring it on, suckers. Where are you at? And so then the Philistines are like, all right, we're coming to get you. And then all of their army flees. I don't know what David does in this moment, but apparently Eliezer is the only dude that sticks around. It must have been cold. He fights them. His hand freezes to the sword. And when his buddies come back, the only thing they're doing is picking up dead bodies that he's, he's fought off. He's a pretty bad dude. I'm going to name my kid Eliezer one day. This is lame if she's a girl. Um, she's got to deal with it. All right, next to him was Shema. Here's what happened with Shema. When the Philistines band together at a place where there was a field full of lentils, Israel troops fled from them. Then Shema took his, hand, took his stand in the middle of the field. He defended it and struck the Philistines down. And the Lord brought back a great victory. There's another guy. Fights an entire army by himself. Abishai. Abishai is one of my favorite. Abishai is uh, like the crazy Irishman. Anyway, Abishai uh, says this about Abishai. He raised his spear against 300 men whom he killed. And so he became famous. One dude versus 300. 300 people. Abishai took him out. Abishai was the one that always wanted to uh, take out Saul. Whenever David and Saul, whenever David was next to Saul and had the opportunity to kill him, Abishai was always like, dude, let me cut off his head. Let me cut off his head. Let me cut off his head. And David was always the one who was like, no, Abishai, we can't do that. 
I just think Abishai was really cool and crazy. He was like the crazy cool guy. All right, then there's Benaiah. Benaiah's really cool. Benaiah struck down Moab's two mightiest warriors. He also went down into a pit on a snowy day and killed a lion. Okay, we get some snow here. We don't really have lions, but we get snow, right? Imagine if you're in snow and there's a lion and it's running at you. I don't know actually how he chased this lion into a pit. But if I, ever was success, if I ever successfully chased a lion into a pit, I'd be like, what's up, lion? Yeah, you're in a pit. I won. That's not what, that's not what he did. Benaiah, crazy man, jumps down into the pit and slaps the lion. And then he kills it. He struck, sorry. Uh, verse 21, and he struck down a huge Egyptian... Although the Egyptian had a spear in his hand and Benaiah against him with only a club. He just beat him with a club. This guy's crazy. And then he snatched the spear from the Egyptian's hand and killed him with his own spear. I love, I, I, there, and, there, and then it goes on to list all the, uh, the men, the mighty men of David. These were his mighty warriors. And I love that story. I love reading about these great warriors, these men that were fearless, these men that had courage, these men that stood for something and they, they didn't back down in the face of trouble and they, they believed in what they were fighting for and they had camaraderie and they had brotherhood. I love reading those stories because it's just, I, I get so excited and so, so inspired by it. But I want to go back to the cave of Adullam real fast. First Samuel 22, David's hanging out in the cave and he escaped to the cave of Adullam then his brothers and his father's his brothers and his father's household heard about it and they went down to meet him there. Look at verse 2. And all those who were in distress or in debt or discontented gathered around him and he became their leader. There was 400 in total. All those who were in distress, in debt or discontented. We're talking about being misfits. David went, to the, went out to the wilderness. This was the man that was anointed to be king. This is the man who life was supposed to be easy for. And it got hard. His own people didn't believe in him. So much so that only the outcasts of society came to hang out with him. Those that were discontent, those that were, that were in debt. Those were the people. Those, I'll bet you that that day, when David started seeing them come, he was like, oh, finally, someone is going to be on my side. Like, finally, I've been running from Saul, and finally, here comes, dude, who are these people? I don't want you, no, you can't stay here. I need, like, big, strong, I need warriors, you know? You are not. You're, you're pretty lame. You're, you're the outcast of society. You're, you're the discontent. You're the distressed. But it was these, it was the outcasts of society that became the mightiest warriors. And I want to tell you that tonight because I believe that that is a picture of the way that the kingdom works. See, Jesus, Jesus is not looking for the biggest and the best. He's not looking for the brightest and the strongest. He just wants the willing. He's looking for the Isaiah 6 willing ones that say, here I am, send me. He, he's looking for the, the ones that, like the kid, you know, who brought his, his fish and his loaves. He didn't have much, but he brought what he had. 
Jesus was able to feed the entire 5,000 people. Jesus doesn't need you to be the biggest and the best. And I think that the truth is, is that this is a room that if we all got really honest, there are plenty of times where we do feel like we're misfits. There are plenty of times where we don't know if we fit in. And you see it so much. You see it in culture so much because we so attempt to fit in. We so try to, to be in the cool crowd or accepted because we don't feel like we fit in. But Jesus says that he's not looking for those that fit in, but he wants to use the willing ones. 1 Corinthians 1, 26 through 29. It says, take a good look, friends, at who you were when you were called into this life. I don't see many of the brightest and the best among you. There's not many influential, not many from high society families. Isn't it obvious that God deliberately chooses men and women that culture overlooks and exploits and abuses? He chooses these nobodies to expose the hollow pretensions of the somebodies. And that makes it quite clear that none of you can get by with blowing your own horn before God. Jesus isn't looking for the brightest and the best. He's not looking for you to have come from the best family. He's not looking for you to have, all the, to have it all together. You're 15 years old. You're 17 years old. He's not saying, hey, you need to get your life together, and then I'll use you for my kingdom. Jesus is looking for the willing ones, the ones that culture would say, you know what, you're not good enough. I don't know that you'll amount to much. I don't know where you're at tonight. But I know that when I was in high school, there was plenty of times where I felt like I wasn't fitting in. There was, there was plenty of times where I felt like I just wasn't quite like everybody else. I was, a, I was what you would call, I don't know what you would call it. I was, I was probably what uh, my friends called the poser. Um, I had the really sweet, awesome, long hair parted down the middle with my, shaved up underneath. Uh, nice little, uh, all my clothes I purchased at a thrift store so that they had other people's names on them. And, uh, you know, all my friends carried skateboards. And uh, I couldn't skate for anything. You know, like I, d I looked the part, but because I wanted to look the part, but I couldn't do it. And, uh, or then maybe one year I'd come and I was, you know, I'd be wearing like a, a, a polo shirt and a, a sweater around my, no, I never did that, but you know, like, but, you know, I tried to dress a little nicer, and I tried to fit in over here, or maybe then I, I tried to fit in over here, and it's this constant battle of who am I, and what am I really, and who will accept me, and in today's culture, there's so much of we just want to be accepted, and the majority of the time, the people that we find as our friends are the people that will accept us. You see it in so many different cultures, we, we desire to be accepted, and I'm here to tell you tonight that Jesus is accepting, and that Jesus says, I don't care what you look like. I don't care how smart you are. I don't care what, what family you come from. I love you, and I want to use you to do great things for the kingdom. I believe that all of us have a desire to be great. I think we have this in, inner desire to do something great. And I don't think it's sinful. I think that God put it in you. But it's about aligning that with him. It's not about your story. It's about his. 
See, Jesus came to give dignity to the misfits. He came to give dignity to the outcasts. He came to give dignity to those that, to those that feel like they don't necessarily belong. Do you know Jesus' favorite stories? They're the underdog stories. He loves the stories of, uh, uh, that, that where someone cannot win. He loves the, I think Jesus, I think that, that God loved the stories of these dudes taking on 300 people at once. You know, read, read about Gideon. He had a huge army. And God just kept saying, Get, take less, take less, take less. He loves to use the people that are just, just bold enough to say, God, I can't do this on my own. And the truth is, is that if your dream is big enough for you to accomplish on your own, then your dream is too small. If your goals are, are enough for you to do on your own, then your goals are probably mostly about you. They're not mostly about the kingdom. But people that live in his story, that live as a part of his kingdom, it's going to take more than you have to offer. And he wants to use you. One of my, I'm, I, I'm a big college football fan. And uh, go Raiders. And uh, one of my favorite stories is, uh, I'm a big Sooner fan. One of my favorite stories is uh, one of the Sooner coaches recruiting this guy. And he was one of the top recruits in the entire country. And, uh, and so he goes down, he visits him. And he's had all the schools that have come and recruited him and gone after him. And, and I'm sure he's feeling pretty good about himself. He knows he's one of the most talented people in the country that, at, at playing football. And his coach... You, can, you read about the story. The coach goes and he sits in his living room and he looks at him and he says, listen, we're going to win championships with you or without you, but we'd rather you be on our team. The truth is, friends, is that Jesus is going to win no matter what. But he's inviting us to be on the team. He's inviting us to participate. He's inviting us. He's saying, you just come to me. You be willing. You, 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 you may not see it. You may not feel like you're good enough. That's great. If you don't feel good enough, then that's exactly where I want you. Because you come to me and you see what he will do with a person that says, that's broken enough to admit that they can't do it on their own. He's the God that takes ashes and makes beauty. It's Christ in you. That's the hope of glory. It's not about you. You're not the hope of glory. It's Jesus in you. One of, my, one of the things that we, as we read about these guys, that's pretty important, is that they had to leave their homes behind. They had to leave their village, and they had to go follow a king that everybody else was saying was a crazy man. They had to go to the wilderness and participate in being a part of the kingdom of a guy who was not yet king. They had to leave everything behind. And because they were willing to do that, because they were willing to recognize their own brokenness, these guys became some of the strongest, baddest dudes in the Bible. But it's because they, were, they left. In Hebrews 13, 13, says, Jesus also suffered outside the city gates to make people holy through his own blood. Let us then go outside of the camp to follow our king. It's not easy. 
It looks crazy sometimes. But if we will, Jesus said that his kingdom was not of this world. You know, the, the Bible, John 1 says that when, when Jesus came, though he created this world, the world did not recognize him. And if you're the kind of person that, said, that is willing to go outside of the camp, outside of what culture says is normal, outside of what society says you should be, if you're the kind of person that is willing to do that, you'll probably be mocked. The truth is, is that these guys that, that went to join David, they were probably mocked. People probably said to them, what are you doing? That guy's, that guy's not king. That guy's crazy. You're just going to go die. If you're the kind of person that tonight says, I'm willing to go outside of the camp to join my king, the truth is, is that people may look at you and say, that's not normal. That's weird. But it takes us, if we'll respond to the call and go outside of the camp, go outside of what culture says we should be, go outside of what society speaks over us, and say, I'm going to live for a kingdom that's not of this world. I'm going to serve a king who gave his life for me. If we'll do that, then I'm telling you, it doesn't, you could be the most talented person in here or the least talented person in here. Jesus will still use you. It's not about who you are. It's about who he is. It's not about your story. It's about his story. And if we see that, we're willing to give all, like Paul says in Galatians. I've been crucified with Christ, therefore I no longer live, but he lives in me. The life I live, I live through Jesus. If we're willing to do that, then I believe we'll be people that change the planet. One of my favorite quotes is from a guy named John Wesley. John Wesley said, Give me a hundred men who love only God and hate only sin. And I care not whether they be clergymen or laymen. But they will shake the gates of hell and establish the kingdom of God on this planet. He said, give me a hundred people who love only God and hate only sin. And I don't care if they're in ministry. I don't care if they're pastors or I don't care if they work at Starbucks or if they're in high school. Or if they love God only and hate sin only. Those are the kind of people that will shake the gates of hell and establish the kingdom of God on this planet. I believe we can be those people. I look in this room and I see world changers. I look in this room and I see people that will change campuses. Last week as we stood in worship, I just had this overwhelming uh, realization of how much I believe in you. How much I believe that you can and will impact your friends. I believe that you are revivalists. I believe that you are the kind of people that will change campuses. I believe you are the people that will change the world. But I don't think you're good enough. But if you will jump in and say, Jesus, I'm on your team. I sign up to be with you. These kind of people shake the gates of hell and establish the kingdom of God in one generation. Nico, if you want to go ahead and come on up. I don't think this is all of us tonight, but I think there are some of us that would say, 
I'm willing to go outside of the camp to serve my king. I'm willing to go outside of what culture says is normal or what, what society says I'm supposed to be in order to be the kind of person that lives for Jesus. If that's you, I want to pray for you tonight. So we're just going to sing here, and, and I just want to invite us all to stand. If that's you tonight, and you say, listen, I want my story to be kind of like these crazy men that, that started off disgruntled and dissatisfied and in debt, but somehow became some of the mightiest warriors. I want my story in Jesus to be like that, where I offer myself, I go outside of the camp, and I offer myself to him, and let's just see what he can do with some willing people, some willing young people here on the north end of Colorado Springs, I believe will shake this city. So if that's you, I just want to invite you to come up front here, and I want, I want to pray for you. here tonight. God, I pray that we would be those that love only God and hate only sin and that see your kingdom established in one generation. God, I pray that we would be those that are willing to leave, to go outside of the camp in order to follow our King. You've called us out, Jesus. You've called us to be the misfits. But those are the very people that you use throughout history, throughout the scripture, throughout church history, time and time again. The people that you use aren't the brightest and the smartest. They're not the strongest all the time. They're the willing ones. So, Father, I pray that we would be marked here at DSM as the willing ones. God, I thank you even as we sang earlier tonight. If our God is for us, who can be against us? This is not about our own strength. This is not about our own identity and who we think we are. This is about finding our identity in you and who you are. God, I pray for big dreams tonight. I pray for every person here. May we have a God-sized dream. May our dreams not be small enough, so small that we can accomplish them on our own. But I pray that from you, that you will give us your dreams, that you will give us your vision, that we will live for your cause and your mission on planet Earth. That we wouldn't be about ourselves, but we would be about your kingdom. 
And over time, this doesn't look as attractive as it once did because you're fixing your eyes on the things of the kingdom. I'm just talking about a thousand that have a vision for their heart, that's got passion for God, they're leading intercession on their schools, they're set apart, consecrated under God, and they've got a vision and a mission for their life. 